this is the lecture that corresponds to the slides for chapter four, which discusses cognitive changes in adolescence. And it's important to distinguish between what we mean by cognitive or cognition and how the study of cognition differs from the study of cognitive neuroscience. We'll actually touch a little bit, only a little bit, on cognitive neuroscience. We will cover um, what changes, both in terms of cognition and the underlying brain changes, or the neuroscience, and we'll talk about how these changes come about. Generally, cognitive psychology is the study of thinking. So it involves the study of perception, the study of attention, the study of memory, the study of human learning, human decision-making, human judgment. Cognitive neuroscience attempts to look at what is going on in the brain structurally over the course of development and functionally in the thinking, perceiving, attending, deciding human, typically an adult human, um, in the brain, in different centers of the brain. And neuroscience often has the implication of wet neuroscience, that is neuroscience that involves sticking electrodes in brains and slicing up brains to find out um, which nuclei have changed. But we, of course, don't do that with human brains. So, the most preeminent scientist studying cognitive development is, of course, the great Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget. In Piaget's conception of the development of the thinking mind, development proceeds in universal stages. All individuals go through the same stages regardless of culture, regardless of class or gender. The timing of stages might vary for individuals, but the stages were seen as universals. And later stages were built on the foundation of earlier stages. Piaget proposed some basic processes that he assumed were central to cognitive development in every stage. Adaptation of the mind to a changing environment, to the affordances of a changing body, <clears throat> involves what Piaget termed assimilation and accommodation. In processes of assimilation, the individual uses existing schemas or concepts to deal with new stimulation, with new stimuli, with new information, with new people. <clears throat> In accommodation, the individual encounters new stimuli, new people, new information 
it can't be adequately handled, can't be adequately processed, adequately responded to with existing concepts or schemas. And as a result, the individual changes the existing concept or creates a new concept or schema in response to the inadequacy of existing concepts. Piaget proposed four universal stages and the stage of concrete operations is the stage of late corresponding to late childhood and the stage of formal or logical hypothetical deductive reasoning is the stage that he believed emerged in adolescence and he believed initially typically characterized adult thinking. Um, in discussing formal operations it's important to distinguish between different types of logic. Um, thinking in formal operational terms is thinking that's based on deductive or rule-based logic. Beginning early in life, we develop a capacity for inductive reasoning or inductive logic. That is, we observe a number of particular situations, a number of occurrences, joint occurrences, and we develop the ability to detect similarities between situations and typical sequences of events. So when the individual is using inductive reasoning, they are generalizing from past observations to make predictions about what is likely to occur in future situations that bear strong similarity to past observations. Um, deductive reasoning is different. When we make inferences based on induction, um, we are saying things like, there are clouds in the sky, they are dark gray, it will probably rain. I have observed dark gray clouds in the sky in the past, and they were typically followed by rain. In inductive reasoning, conclusions necessarily follow from premises. We aren't making predictions about what will probably happening. We are inferring what will necessarily happen, given that something is true. So what Piaget is arguing is that deductive reasoning, the capacity for deductive reasoning, emerges in adolescence. And this enables contemplations of hypothetical scenarios. If people stopped hating other people on the basis of religious differences, then what would follow if people stopped looking down on people whose appearance was different 
from theirs, what would happen. Hypothetico deductive reasoning is similar to the reasoning that scientists use. Um, but as you may have experienced yourself, um, as certainly your parents and perhaps other adults in your adolescent life told you, um, adolescent reasoning is not always strictly. It's also important to distinguish between two types of reasoning, um, analytic and heuristic reasoning. Um, analytic thinking is logical, is rational. Um, whether it is based on inductive reasoning or deductive reasoning. Heuristic thinking is intuitive, less conscious, more automatic, Analytic thinking has to be deliberately evoked. We have to decide that we're going to pay attention, decide that we're going to use rules of logic. Uh, heuristic thinking is automatic, it's quicker, it's less effortful. Heuristic reasoning is gut feeling, gut thinking, belief driven, bias driven, prejudice driven, emotion driven thinking and decision making. Analytic thinking is knowledge driven, analysis driven, deductive reasoning driven, quantitative reasoning driven. How do you spend most of your time thinking? Hopefully, in your academic work, you're doing much more analytic thinking. And in your social life, you're probably doing a lot of heuristic thinking. And heuristic thinking, for many purposes, can be good enough. But when it leads us to risky decision-making, when it leads us to harmful decision-making. If we're lucky, our analytic abilities kick in our um, forebrain-based or frontal lobe-based um, executive processes kick in and we think about the possible consequences of those automatically generated courses of action and if they seem to be negative for ourselves or for others, we may say, okay, Let's not do that. What could I do instead? And that evaluation of potential consequences, that generation of alternatives, is what is often very difficult for young adolescents to do. In everyday life, formal operational thinking is involved as we consider different possible alternatives, different hypotheses. Um, what if I had been born into a different family? I grew up middle class. What if I'd been Donald Trump's child or Rockefeller's child? Uh, formal operational thinking 
enables us to understand multiple meanings, multiple shades of meaning of words, of social situations, of political situations. In terms of language, it enables us to understand metaphor, irony, sarcasm. So changes in how we perceive things, not just seeing them in terms of the immediate, obvious, concrete, superficial appearance, um, typically emerge in adolescence. And Piaget, in writing about cognitive development in early childhood and preschool years, uh, focuses on egocentrism as one of the limitations of children's thinking. And in childhood, egocentrism refers to, among other things, the spatial arrangements of objects in the world. A very young child may assume that other people who are not physically present um, can see what the child can see, or that someone on the other side of a room can see something that's obscured from that viewer's position, but that the child can see. The young child doesn't understand differences in physical perspective. The adolescent has typically been developing the ability to take the social, the intellectual perspective of other people on situations. But that has to be deliberately evoked when thinking automatically, when thinking heuristically. The adolescent, particularly the young adolescent, thinks primarily about how events, how situations affect them. And one of Piaget's intellectual heirs, David Elkin, um, has written extensively about the imaginary audience and what he calls the personal fable. Um, imaginary audience refers to the phenomenon of believing that everything you do is salient to other people so that they notice when you look particularly chic and cool and when you look particularly dorky, or you're having a bad hair day, or you've got a bad acne outbreak, or you've gained two pounds and your jeans are tight. Uh, I remember acutely when I was maybe in eighth grade, Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson's wife was coming to town, and a group have to understand this is southern Alabama. Um, a, a group of um, girls, myself included, was recruited by the local democratic organization to dress up in um, antebellum flouncy dresses and big sun hats to greet the first lady at some public event. And my mother decided that my ballet slippers that I wore for ballet lessons should be painted to match the color of the outrageously pink ruffly dress that I was wearing. Um, 
so this was okay but then when it was time to go to my ballet lesson in my regular leotards the pink paint wouldn't come off of my black ballet slippers and I was quite sure that everyone in my ballet class was going to notice and that I would be mocked into psychological oblivion. Well, you can imagine just how many people noticed the pink flaking paint on my shoes and um, told me what a creep I was, what a social pariah. Uh, that would be exactly no one. Um, but I, I had this really exaggerated fear that everybody would notice. Another aspect of adolescent egocentrism is believing that the intense emotions, whether these are transports of joy or adolescent lust or, or fear and anxiety, that have never been experienced by the particular individual with quite this amount of intensity are unique in the course of human history. So of course parents can't understand. Of course they don't understand how significant a particular boyfriend, a particular girlfriend, a movie, a song, a D on an exam, whatever it is that has caused an elevation of emotional intensity for the individual. Nobody's ever felt like this before, nobody's ever experienced anything like this before, and the teen is uniquely misunderstood. It takes a while to get over that. Older siblings, where they exist, um, can help a lot. Um, peers who have siblings can help a lot. But belief that one's life and one's experience are unique and worthy of note um, is fairly common in adolescence. Um, in contrast to Piaget's emphasis on um, universal stages in cognitive development. Lev Vygotsky approached development as um, a social process that unfolded as a result of the individual's interaction with more knowledgeable others in the individual child-adolescence environment. Um, Vygotsky saw development as facilitated by skilled teachers, parents, older peers who provide appropriate supports for the individual learning technical skills, vocational skills, academic skills, social skills that are particularly important in their culture, in their social environment. Another key concept in Vygotsky's view of development was the zone of proximal development. That is, in, in each um, given stage of development, there are tasks that the individual can perform competently, and there are tasks that are out of reach but with the task appropriately structured, with appropriate support, the developing individual can perform new tasks. So the role 
of parents, the role of teachers, the role frequently played by peers who may be advanced in some spheres, is to provide scaffolding to enable development of socially, culturally important skills. So what is it that changes over the course of adolescence? Um, over the course of childhood, typically general knowledge, vocabulary, increase dramatically. Um, working memory, the ability to hold things in awareness, typically increases. And where adolescents develop some particular skills, whether those are athletic skills or skills in musical performance, some aspects of working memory, those that are specific to those performance domains, may increase dramatically in capacity. So we know more. Our long-term memory, our semantic memory, is full of much more information about a more diverse set of things. The capacity of our awareness to hold things um, in working memory generally increases. So the adolescent can think about more things, can think about more kinds of things. Additionally, as the frontal cortex develops connectivity, develops um, heavier myelination so that transmission speed is more rapid, the ability to direct and sustain attention for longer periods of time grows, the ability to restrain impulses, to contemplate the consequences of actions that are driven by emotion that are driven by desire grows, and the ability to generate alternatives, alternatives of no action or an alternative action typically grows. And together we call these executive control functions, directing and sustaining attention, restraining impulses, contemplating future effects, of actions and choosing alternative actions that may produce more favorable outcomes. So these executive control processes typically improve, um, reflecting both experience, parenting experience, the parenting practices that the child experiences, school experiences, peer influence, and the biological maturation of the brain. So mental activities become more automatic. Memory retrieval of information that has been learned in the past becomes faster, less effortful. Um, effortful, consciously directed thought becomes easier, becomes faster, and becomes more analytic. The general uh, outline of thinking, of information processing, um, is that sensory input is briefly held in our working memory. Our executive functions control what we pay attention to, 
what gets rehearsed, what gets transferred to long-term memory. And adolescents typically have improved through practice um, as a result of their own long-term goals, as a result of the expectations of their parents and teacher. Adolescents have typically improved their ability to direct their attention and to maintain sustained selective attention on a book, on a source of information, on the road in front of them. The processing speed with which we handle incoming information improves with adolescents. And adolescents are stop seeing information in silos um, with clear defined boundaries between concepts um, and are able to think much more broadly. Um, slide 10 outlines um, the flow of information as um, initially described by the cognitive psychologists Atkinson and Schifrin, which was we have sensory input that briefly resides in a sensory register. If we pay attention information or rehearse information, it moves into what they called short-term memory. Um, and it might move into long-term memory. And we process things in short-term memory to generate behavior. Uh, badly added working memory, which includes interactions with uh, an executive control process. Uh, we now know that executive control processes can, in fact, influence what it is that we sense, what it is that we perceive. So we have um, more boxes, more directional arrows. Now, the illustration um, in your book um, includes an arrow from long-term memory to output. I have obscured that with an opaque white block because that is really very, very far from normative um, cognitive psychology. Um, behavior is not generated directly from long-term memory. Behavior um, is generated from um, output controllers, whether those are cortical um, or they are striatal or based in um, structures involving or circuits involving the basal ganglia and the cerebellum. Um, so we don't generate behavior directly from memory. Everything goes from long-term memory. Everything goes through some sort of working memory buffer, perhaps with the benefit of analysis and evaluation and filtering by executive control processes, perhaps not. Um, last week I was almost run over by a car that ignored the right of way that pedestrians have and just as soon as the light changed took a rapid turn nearly hitting me and a family. Um, and I said something colorful. Um, I restrained myself from slamming my fist onto the hood of the person's car, um, but just 
barely. Um, but that didn't come straight from the long-term memory place where those words were stored. It had to um, go through a number of processes. Okay, um, any discussion of cognitive changes uh, ultimately has to get around to a discussion of intelligence. So what do we mean by intelligence? Psychologists do not agree. Many of my colleagues simply skip sections in their textbooks that discuss intelligence. I've done that. Um, what I would argue is that intelligence is a broad spectrum of adaptive abilities that enable individuals to meet environmental challenges, whether those are physical, psychological, social challenges, to survive and to thrive. So the challenges of childhood include managing yourself, managing your emotions, managing your attention, dealing with academic tasks, doing work that parents or others may assign, um, managing relationships in the family, with peers, with authorities in school and other environments. The challenges of adolescence include all of these plus typically heightened expectations for how you're going to perform these various tasks. Some of these aspects of adaptive ability are much easier to measure than others. Virtually none of them are independent of experience, so practice with types of tasks, whether they're psychological tasks, such as regulating one's emotion, or academic tasks, such as calculating derivatives. Performance increases with experience, performance increases with practice. Um, what we've done is reify or make real make concrete the concept of intelligence in a set of numbers. And that's a gross reduction, a gross oversimplification. So we have measured the things that are easiest to measure and said that's what there is. And formal attempts to measure intelligence began in the 19th century with the work of Galton and the American psychologist Cattell, who briefly studied with him. They tried to measure things like um, perceptual acuity um, and perceptual motor speed. And they found that these measures had no correlation with things like measures of academic or scientific accomplishment. Um, Binet was a French psychologist who, when the Paris school system instituted compulsory public education, was commissioned to develop a way to identify children who would not benefit from typical instruction. Uh, so he developed uh, an approach to individually administer questions in order of increasing difficulty to children, um, questions that were based on the kinds of tasks that children were given in school. Um, initially, he characterized children's intelligence in terms of their mental age. That is, he, by studying um, children 
um, in large numbers, he was able to identify sets of questions that the typical child who was six years and six months old could answer successfully questions that the typical child who was six years and no months could answer successfully, those that the typical seven-year-old could answer. So based on the questions that a child answered, he assigned a mental age. Um, someone quickly realized, a German psychologist by the name of Stern, that it was more meaningful to compare mental age with actual chronological age. And so the term intelligence quotient, which was the ratio of mental age to chronological age times 100, was born. Um, in the 20s, IQ tests were expressed, IQ test scores were expressed differently. That is, they were standardized to a mean of 100 for um, a given age group with a standard deviation of 15. So this forces scores into a normal or bell-shaped curve. Um, slide 14 illustrates uh, the resulting distribution of IQ scores. 68% um, or slightly more than two-thirds range from 85 to 115 symmetrically distributed around the mean of 100. Um, so scores of 130 are more than two standard deviations above the mean. Scores of 70 are two standard deviations below the mean. And as you get farther and farther from the mean, um, scores become less and less frequent. IQ scores change with age, and one can argue that intelligence, which is a different thing from IQ scores, it's a much broader thing um, than an IQ score, changes with age. Um, psychometricians today commonly talk about fluid intelligence and crystallized intelligence. Fluid intelligence is the speed with which we can take information in, process it, um, make decisions. Crystallized intelligence refers to our accumulated knowledge and judgment. Fluid intelligence, response speed, perceptual motor speed, perceptual speed, peaks during adolescence. Almost any of you would be much better at any video game than I would be because you've got that processing speed advantage. Crystallized intelligence, however, increases across the adult years at least as long as people keep accumulating knowledge and experience. Now, different individuals obviously are going to have different experiences, different um, length of schooling, different patterns of continuity in learning, different patterns of um, use of perceptual motor abilities. Slide 16 illustrates uh, the typical pattern of change in what the textbook refers to in overly simplistic terms as mental ability with age. So what you see is that mental ability or the ability to adapt and solve adaptive problems increases with age um, and then asymptotes at some 
unspecified period of maturity. Um, slide 17 with an illustration from 125 um, gives an illustration of what typically happens with IQ test scores and we can partition the items in IQ tests into those that reflect general knowledge and those that reflect um, speed of pattern recognition, speed of pattern analysis, and duplication. So we can segregate items that test crystallized intelligence from those that test fluid intelligence. Um, and what you see is that the aggregate score um, typically peaks in early adolescence and stays fairly stable until um, late adulthood when it may begin to decline slightly. But fluid intelligence peaks dramatically in adolescence and then begins a steady monotonic decline. Crystallized intelligence increases across the lifespan and on average begins a decline. Uh, in the 60s. Um, I'm not a big fan of intelligence test scores because they are, are too often over-interpreted as some rigid and unchanging aspect of a person as a measure of individual worth and that is what they are not. Um, what they can be is reasonably accurate predictors of academic and vocational success, given that nothing in the individual's environment, in the expectations that others have of the individual, in the individual's educational experience changes. But if things change, if a person develops a greater sense of self-efficacy and seeks out opportunities for intellectual growth, IQ can change. If a person, if a child moves to a school system that more effectively recognizes and develops the potential of its students, IQs can and do change. How much of intelligence is innate? How much is acquired? To the extent that intelligence reflects knowledge, all knowledge is acquired. We aren't born knowing things. We're born with perceptual and cognitive systems and patterns of handling information. But what we know, we have to acquire through experience. Differences in learning speed, differences in memory capacity reflect both innate differences in nervous systems and the results of experience. Practice improves our memory capacity, practice improves our retrieval speed for getting things out of memory. Our nervous systems, our brain, retain plasticity, retain the ability to change throughout our lives. Um, slide 20 illustrates uh, between and within group differences using the uh, metaphor of seeds sown in fertile soil, sown in poor soil. Let's think about the analogs, fertile soil, poor soil for human development. What are some important environmental variables? The nutrition that a developing fetus, a developing brain receives prenatally. The nutrition that a developing child receives the practices of parents, the practices of teachers, the availability of medical care, 
the expectations that parents and teachers have for an individual child's learning, for individuals who are members of social groups, racial groups, religious groups in terms of their learning, where expectations are lower, accomplishments are often lower. Um, what we know from decades of animal experimentation is that environmental variance, environmental enrichment, contributes more to learning speed, more to learning ability, than does genetic variance. Both contribute. It's not that genes are not important, but the environment is hugely important. So, can intelligence be changed? Yes! High-quality early intervention programs directed at children who are at high risk for low IQ, for um, academic difficulty can have sustained impact um, on IQ. Um, and more importantly, though those impacts tend to shrink to about what half of they are initially, um, early intervention programs, high quality early intervention programs have big impacts on employability, on high school graduation rates, um, on um, involvement with the criminal justice system. So it, broader measures of um, adaptive ability than simply um, IQ scores show big impacts from early intervention programs. Um, individual effort at acquiring new skills, at acquiring knowledge, at strengthening memory performance, improves performance. High intensity remediation um, after stroke after um, brain trauma, improves functional abilities, improves intelligence far more than previously thought possible. It is not the case that anybody is capable of anything with enough effort, with enough remediation, with enough intervention. Um, but the plasticity of the human brain and consequently of the human mind um, is far greater then was once assumed. Um, another approach to intelligence is that of Robert Sternberg, who argues that we have three separate groups of abilities, a practical intelligence, or a real-world street smart, um, a creative intelligence, ability to generate new solutions to problems that are different from prior solutions, and analytic intelligence. This is the intelligence aspect that is most closely related to academic performance to what traditional IQ tests measure. He argues that having um, a successful combination of intelligences leads to success at achieving personal goals. We know that adolescents who have a balance of social abilities, practical street smarts abilities, and analytic abilities um, tend to thrive more than those who have an imbalance in their abilities. They're better adjusted socially, they're better adjusted academically. Howard Gardner has a different take on intelligence that we have depending on when you're reading his work, six, seven, eight, or nine different intelligences. Um, the point is that we can't reduce adaptive ability to one or two numbers and say we've captured something essential about a person in those numbers. 
Um, even individuals who exhibit broad retardation in intellectual and social function uh, may often have an area of unusual skill. We refer to those people as savants. Um, if you take cognition with me when I next teach it, I usually do a lecture on savant syndrome. Um, metacognition is another aspect of cognitive development. As we mature, we develop an understanding of what we know, an understanding of how we learn, an understanding of how we think, and to some extent how that works for other people. And this is what we refer to as metacognition. So metacognition is thinking about thinking. Uh, we typically go from believing that knowledge is absolute, which we believe often as children, to knowledge being relative. Well, if you think so, um, by late adolescence, we have the ability to more reasonably evaluate the sources of knowledge, the nature of knowledge. Sometimes knowledge is relative. Sometimes knowledge is relevant and sometimes it is not. The ability to think critically about information typically has to be trained and it has to be trained in domain-specific ways. We don't automatically develop analytical and critical thinking abilities. Uh, the conversations that take place in our family, the literacy environment in our family, the environment in our school, the environment in our culture, um, all of these influence the extent to which individual adolescents develop critical thinking skills. So biologically, our brains have periods of synaptic proliferation followed by synaptic pruning. Um, as we develop experience, um, axons become more heavily myelinated if they are active. Um, as we develop, the frontal cortex becomes more heavily myelinated. Um, in early adolescence, there seem to be some changes in the emotional system governing wanting and enjoying things. Um, and all of these biological changes are um, constantly being influenced by experience. Um, so changes can be accelerated, changes can be delayed based on nutritional experience, psychological experience, social experience. Psychologically, we typically have improvement in knowledge, improvement in memory, improvement in attention, effortful control, uh, our ability to delay gratification, to restrain impulsive behavior. Uh, we become capable of more abstract thought, more complex thinking, more analytic thinking. 